0: Nice work, nice work. Well, at this time, we're going to dismiss our kids to Children's Church. And um, so as they're headed out, uh, I also want to invite you, if you're sticking around, to turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and, and uh, for those who are sticking around, I want to ask you to stand. Let's stand together and hear God's Word, and then we'll, we'll get into it here together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, But now you have received mercy. This is God's word. You may be seated. And uh, as, I, as I thought about what to preach on here this morning, this, this being the last Sunday, I'll be preaching until September, which is hard to believe for me. Um, I was reminded of the many reasons that I strongly prefer the practice of the consecutive exposition of Scripture. Scripture. Uh, just working our way through books and portions of Scripture, kind of piece by piece, section by section. And uh, one of those reasons that I prefer that practice is that when you preach through Scripture section by section, it's a lot easier to decide what to preach on from Sunday to Sunday. A lot easier. And uh, so as we've been working our way through Genesis in recent months, for example, it hasn't been that difficult to decide what to preach on from week to week. I just get as far as I can one week and then pick up where I left off the next time. Um, but this week I had the whole Bible to choose from. And uh, when it came to the sermon, which is a little scary for me, a little overwhelming, honestly, what should I preach on? What text should I preach from? I don't know. It's all God's word. It's all, it's all really good, right? It's all inspired by God. So admittedly, I had to sort of approach the sermon this Sunday, or at least the subject of it, quite a bit more subjectively than usual. And so I guess that we'll all know uh, by, you know, about noon this morning whether I made a beneficial call regarding the sermon today or, or not. But where my meditations and thoughts led, uh, or thoughts about the sermon led me this week, was to the subject of corporate worship. Corporate worship, the regular weekly coming together of Christ's redeemed people in one place to ascribe worth and honor to God in response to the grace that he has shown to us in Jesus. That's what's on my mind uh, this week. It's what's on my mind this morning. Corporate worship is really what's probably most on my mind as it concerns our church as I prepare to leave for a sabbatical. And as I think about it, there's really a number of reasons for that. So if you'll bear with me here, I just want to lay out some of those reasons uh, here before we dig further into this subject and into the scriptures that speak to it. The reasons that corporate worship is on my mind right now are, are several. Number one is that there is really no activity of a church that's more important than corporate worship. Worship is the most important thing we do. Um, worship is the most vital, it's the most urgent activity of any church. That is because there's no one more important than God. There's no one more uh, deserving of our attention than, than the Lord, and so worship is the most important thing we do. That's first. Second, it's on my mind because the worship of God revealed, who is revealed in Christ, is really the source of all our spiritual growth as a church. It's the source, it's, the, it's where we get nourishment for the Christian life, um, Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 2, that passage we just read, in verses 4 and 5, he says, as you come to him, as you come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. As you come to him, you are built up. As you, as you come to Jesus, that is, together, I think, as his people, looking to him for grace, celebrating him, praising him together, you get built up as his people. And uh, the idea is that if you come, you get built up. If you don't come, you won't be built up. It's only as we come to him as his people that he builds us up. So Christ builds no church that is not regularly coming to him. So worship, ironically, is not about us at all which we'll get into, but it actually has great benefit for us as we do it. Um, so that's second. Then third, another reason this is on my mind is because when the church is gathered for worship, God dwells in our midst in a special and powerful sort of way. The Lord is nowhere on earth, and I mean this, and the Bible means this. The Bible says things like this, that he is nowhere on earth so present and active as he is when his people come together to worship him. Um, Peter says, again, you know, to, just to go back to verses 4 and 5 in that passage we read, he says, as you come to him, that is, come to Jesus together as his people, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So it's not just you're built up, you're built up as a spiritual house, and spiritual house is temple language, temple language. It's, uh, it's Old Testament language. It's, it's, he's talking about the dwelling place of God, where the Lord manifests his presence to his people in the world in a personal and life-changing sort of way, like he does no other place on the earth. The Lord is present everywhere. He's omnipresent. He dwells everywhere. There is no space uh, in heaven or on earth where the Lord is not present, but he manifests his presence in a unique and powerful way when his people come together to worship him. So uh, that's, that's third. That's a third reason God is uniquely active and present uh, when we come together to worship him. So you could say in one sense, corporate worship is just always on my mind. It's always on my mind. Um, there's nothing that we do that's more important. And so it's always like you know, top of the list, the, you know, one of the most important urgent issues um, for me and for us as pastors. But then, I'll give you some more specific reasons. Number four, fourth reason, corporate worship is on my mind is because corporate worship with this church is the thing I know that I will miss the most while I'm on sabbatical. Um, and so worshiping with you all on each Lord's day is one of the greatest joys of my life. And though we may be around here, our family may be around shepherds for, uh, some this summer, it's not nearly going to be as consistent for us here, at least as usual. And I'm going to be missing that. So that's a personal reason. We'll be, we'll be worshiping at other churches and with other churches, but it's not going to be the same for us. So that's why it's on my mind. But then fifth, we're also approaching the summer months. And uh, life during the summer for a lot of people here along the front range and along the mountains, near the mountains, is just all about recreation and leisure. Uh, even for Christians, re- recreation becomes like priority number one for a lot of us during the summer months around here. Uh, and, and that's true all year long. I think I think leisure and recreation, though it's a good thing, is also one of the idols of the front range. It's one of the things we worship uniquely here. Uh, and, uh, and while we all are going to have some opportunities, extra opportunities to recreate and enjoy some extra leisure time in the coming months, I really want to encourage us all to still prioritize the regular, consistent gatherings of corporate worship with God's people and not neglect that this summer. So that's fifth. But then sixth, I have a personal concern as I go into sabbatical that there may be some in our church who are inclined to think of our weekly worship services here as like less essential or as totally optional simply because we ha- are going to have guest preachers and the normal routine of things isn't, you know, it's not going to be so normal and the normal preacher isn't going to be around. And I could be totally wrong in that case in which... I would sincerely, sincerely rejoice, but just in case, there's always that just in case, right? Just in case anyone in our church is thinking that their presence as a member of this local church in the weekly worship gatherings isn't important, just because the normal preacher isn't going to be around and guest preachers will be filling in or just because things will be different than normal, I just want to tell you on good authority, the Lord Jesus will still be here every single week. He's still going to be here. His word is still going to be proclaimed. His gospel is still going to be celebrated. His spirit is still going to be at work to convict and encourage and sanctify and strengthen his people. There's only one person who makes this church worth joining, worth attending, worth participating in, and it is most certainly not the guy who needs three months off just to get some rest. The only one who makes this church worth being a part of is Jesus, and he's not going anywhere. Can we just say that? He's not going anywhere. So in the event that a little loving nudge might be needed, I want to encourage you to prioritize being with Jesus, coming to Jesus with his people while I'm away. So let's spend a little time uh, considering uh, the definition of worship, the importance of worship, and then focus in on a few ways that we can engage wholeheartedly in corporate worship both in the coming months and for years to come. Okay? What is worship? What is worship? Let's first define it. Let's talk about the definition of corporate worship. Paul, or the way Peter defines the worship of the church in 1 Peter 2 is with the language, as we've noticed already, of coming to Jesus. As you come to him, in verse 4 he says, Peter describes the, the worship as the act of approaching Christ, coming toward Christ, constantly and continually and frequently coming into the presence of God in Christ together for intimate, satisfying, worshipful fellowship with him. And the sense is that we'll do that Regularly right? That's the sense. As you come to him, as you come to him, like again and again and again, as you come to him today and as you come to him again next time and as you come again, again, just again and again and again, which is essentially the same thing as what Peter describes in verse 2 as longing for the pure spiritual milk. Did you notice that? He's really talking about the same thing. He's talking there about seeking in Jesus true spiritual nourishment, true spiritual instruction, spiritual strength, looking to Him for spiritual sustenance, looking to Him for encouragement, looking to Him for wisdom, looking to Him for joy, looking to Him for peace, looking to Him for comfort, looking to Him for life itself. We are to come to Christ frequently to have our hearts satisfied by Him and in Him. And in fact, that's perhaps the greatest privilege and benefit of being cleansed and purchased by Christ's sacrificial blood, is that we now get to come to Him. We get to come to Him and be received and be welcomed into His presence. So worship is about coming to Christ, coming to meet with our Lord and Savior coming to express praise and adoration for our king, coming to be with Jesus. And what that means is that worship is an activity. It's an activity and not an experience. It's an activity and not an experience as so many people tend to think about it today. It's something we do, not something that is done to us or for us. The goal of worship is to get the eyes of our hearts off of ourselves, off of this world, off of sin, off of other people, off of our troubles, and to fix them wholeheartedly upon our Savior as we behold him. And as we enjoy him as he's revealed himself in his word. And as we praise him for his infinite perfections. And as we cry out to him for instruction and encouragement and conviction and transformation. And as we submit ourselves to him and to his commands and to his righteous standards. That's what worship is. I really appreciate this definition of worship from J.I. Packer. This gets to the heart of our most urgent and important activity and duty as a church. This is what worship is, according to the Bible. Packer says, Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their Creator. He says it's the due response, the appropriate response of rational creatures to the self-revelation. Of their Creator. He says it is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to Him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of His greatness and graciousness that He has given. It involves praising Him for what He is, thanking Him for what He has done, desiring Him to get Himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting Him with our concern for our own and others' future well-being. That's what worship is. That's what it is. Setting our attention setting our meditations and our delights and our hopes and our cares and our praises and our needs upon God and looking to Him alone to satisfy and secure and sanctify our souls for His glory. And I think this can be easily shown from Scripture. How, how does God speak about worship in the rest of Scripture? We can look at a few places in Psalm 95 is one place, if you want to flip there, you can, or you can just listen, I can read it for us. Psalm 95 verses 1 through 7 tells us what worship is with the invitation, Oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. See how Godward worship is meant to be. This isn't about us, it is about him. Psalm 96, the next psalm, uh, verses 7 through 9, says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. That's what worship is. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Or you could go to Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where we're given these, these uh, opportunities to glimpse into heaven, to see what's going on as all the earth disintegrates and crumbles under suffering and sin and wickedness and the judgment of God. What's going on in heaven while all the earth is a mess? And we see in Revelation 4, for example... What are, the, what are the people doing there? They're worshiping the Lord. And how are they worshiping the Lord? They're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Or if you go to Revelation 5, same thing there. The, the worship is now directed to Christ, the Lamb, the one who was slain for our sins and uh, the, the language there is the same. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests, kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then they end, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You see how this works? True and sincere worship in the Bible is all about the Lord. And only about the Lord. It's all about giving him the glory, giving him the honor giving him the praise that he so rightly deserves, the glory and honor and praise that we so rightly owe to him. This is our due response as rational creatures to the self-revelation of our creator. But if, if that's what worship is, when we talk about corporate worship, corporate worship and not individual worship when we talk about corporate worship all we're talking essentially is about the times we come together to do this together as his people when we come together as a church as paul says in first corinthians 11 like as a whole church as he talks about there a local church as we come together as a local church to worship the Lord, typically as it as it goes according to Scripture, on the first day of the week, that was the pattern of the early church meeting weekly on the the day that Christ was raised from the dead. That would be Sunday, the, as it's called in Revelation one, the Lord's Day, to give our due response as creatures and as redeemed sinners to the God who has made Himself known and who has saved us from death and judgment in Christ. To give God our due response of grateful praise and delight and glory and adoration and confession and commitment and, and to to do it in ways that he has commanded in scripture through singing songs to him and offering prayers to him and reading his words so that we hear from him and preaching the gospel that he has given to us to, to protect and promote and pass on and, and give of our resources and all these kinds of things and observe the ordinances of baptism and as we'll do later, the Lord's Supper, do it in ways that he's commanded and then to give this response to him as one body. That's what we're talking about when we talk about corporate worship, giving God what he deserves from us together, right? Now, thinking about corporate worship in these terms alone, just, just thinking about it in these terms, ought to radically affect the way that we look at the value or the success or the worth of our worship services, as we call them. Like just, just realizing that this is what worship is ultimately about equips us to it, it equips us to think about what makes a good worship service. What makes a good worship gathering as a church? I think it helps us think along those lines and evaluate things along those lines in a proper way. It challenges challenges us in the way we typically think about such gatherings, I think, as well. Because now the real question is, the fundamental question is, we think about how church was this morning. You know, we're all going to go away from, from this gathering and think, how was church this morning? We're going to rate it. All of us do. You all got a scale of 1 to 10. We all do. And we're like, yeah, I think it was like six and a half today. Or maybe it was a really good Sunday. No, that was a 10 or whatever, you know. And uh, we're all going to go home and, and, and rate how church was. So what I want to encourage you to do is take this definition of worship and evaluate what we do here according to that definition and not some other standard. What would that other standard be? It'd be a very subjective standard. Did it make me feel good? Did I get goosebumps at some point along the way during the worship service? Did the hairs in the back of my neck stand up at some point? Did I get a good feeling? Did the did the songs we sang, were, were they songs that I enjoyed? Do I feel better now than I did when I walked in? Was the preacher easy to listen to? Was he funny? Did he make me laugh? Did he make me feel good? Things like that. If, if worship is the due response that a rational creature gives to a God who has revealed himself in Christ and redeemed sinners in Christ. If worship is our due response, then the only question that matters when we come together is, did God get the glory and honor that he deserves from all of us? It's the only question that matters. See, a lot of us have been conditioned in various ways to think of worship as a personal experience rather than a personal act. One, one religious scholar writing a few decades ago, actually, said it this way. He said, for the modern evangelical, worship is defined exclusively in terms of the individual's experience. Worship, then, is not about adoring God, but about being nourished with religious feelings, so much so that the worshipper has become the object of worship. And he's right. What's, what's kind of frightening is that that was like decades ago. It was decades ago. I can't imagine how I'd say it today. But when we think about worship as an experience and not an act, something that happens to us as opposed to something that we do and participate in, we make worship really, ultimately, all about us. It's all about us now. When worship is an, ex- when, when worship is an experience, something that's done to us rather than something that comes from us, we essentially become worshipers of ourselves. True worship is about God. True worship is about what God deserves from us and this alone. And, and, and yet we're also told that there is great benefit, great benefit for us when we come together to worship the Lord, that there are really manifold benefits for us when we worship the Lord sincerely and wholeheartedly. So I want to look at that real quick. The benefits of corporate worship. We'll have to run through some of this quickly, but I, I do want to mention them. If you look at 1 Peter 2 again, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh in verse 5, Peter mentions perhaps the main consequence, uh the main benefit for us um, there in 1 Peter 2 5, and, and that is our spiritual growth, which we mentioned earlier. He says as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood that's a that's a a holy community of gospel ministers to offer up spiritual sacrifices accept, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So do you see the connection here? Jesus builds his church by growing each individual member of the church as the church comes to him again and again and again in worship. Jesus grows his people as his people worship him. And the idea is that God goes to work. To sanctify and strengthen and encourage and cleanse and sustain and assure and convict and mature his people as they come over and over again, repeatedly and regularly to worship Christ. We grow as we come to worship. That's a serious benefit. It's the same ideas we find in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, where Paul says that it's as we behold the glory of Christ, which is another, I think, helpful way of understanding the true nature of, of worship, of Christian worship. It's beholding the glory of Christ. And Paul says... There in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that it's as we behold the glory of Christ that we ourselves are transformed into Jesus' own glorious image from one degree of glory to another. If you want to grow as a Christian, you have to devote yourself to the regular worship of Christ. And not just personal, private, individual worship at home, not just you know on hikes up Longs Peak or whatever at Chautauqua or whatever you do. Not just in those private times, but in the gathered times of corporate worship with other Christians. It's here, it's in the, these gatherings where God dwells with his people uniquely and powerfully like he does nowhere else on the earth. It's here where the Lord shows up and manifests his saving and sanctifying power in the lives of his people like nowhere else in the world. So if you want to grow. You got you to be. In the presence of God. With the people of God. But there's also I think encouragement. And comfort to be found. That's another benefit in gathering with God's people. There's encouragement and comfort to be found. Um, the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 10. That it's in these gatherings. When we're able to stimulate and strengthen one another. To love and good works. And. So, you know, by implication, be stimulated and be strengthened ourselves to keep pressing on in the faith, to continue on in love and good works. I think the idea is that we need each other to to find the strength to keep enduring by faith in Christ to the end of this life. Life is hard. Life is challenging. Life is difficult. We need other Christians around us. And these are one of the, you know, uh custom-built, hand-delivered opportunities that God has given us to do that with one another. I think there's also the benefit of spiritual awakening, you could say. Spiritual awakening to be found, to be gained when the church gathers for worship. Really what we're talking about here is just a needed recalibration, a needed refocus, a needed clarity, that is to be found when we come together to focus upon the Lord. Martin Luther once said, At home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. I think this is also what the psalmist in Psalm 73 is talking about, what he's describing is he ...wrestles with the confusion and anger of his heart over the frustrations of life. He, he admits there to be struggling to see how uh, you know, a life committed to God could be worth it... ...when there are so many wicked people in this life who seem to prosper in this world while so many of the people who are committed to God just seem to get crushed at every turn. And he says, he admits that he struggled with this and he struggled to see how it could be worth it to keep his heart pure for the Lord and all of that. And he says he struggled with it until he went into the sanctuary of God. Till he went to the temple where God and his people could be found. He says in, in uh, Psalm 73, when I thought to understand this, why the world works this way, why so much injustice goes on, why wicked people prosper and godly people don't. He says, when I thought about how, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. And so he's saying that being with God and being with his people gave him clarity to see through the fog of life. As I know it's done for me, I can, I can attest to that, I can testify to that. It's done this for me so many times over the years. It's a great benefit to be gained from times of corporate worship, that spiritual awakening and clarity. And there's other benefits, uh, but these are, I think, some of the main ones. So, yes, worship is about God, right? But God in his mercy tells us that there are benefits for us to be gained when we turn our hearts to him, and especially when we turn our hearts to him together. But if God is worthy of our worship, if, if worship is the due response of creatures and of sinful and redeemed sinners like ourselves, and if there are benefits to be gained in those times when we worship the Lord together, it is right for us to consider how we engage in worship and how we can make the most of those times when we worship the Lord together. If we want to, want for God to get the glory in our worship and for ourselves to receive the benefits of worshiping him together, we should want to make the most of our times of corporate worship. It's not just about being here. It's about what we do when we come. So what are some ways that we can make the most out of corporate worship? There's some exhortations I want to Give to all of us, and I'm preaching to myself here as well, eight exhortations I think I have here. We'll see if that's true in the end. Um, along these lines, number one, show up. Show up regularly insofar as you are able. And, and I want to stress that second part, insofar as you are able, Right? because there are perfectly legitimate reasons for not showing up on a Sunday, perfectly legitimate reasons. Your health prevents you, you're out of town, you you aren't able to drive, stuff like that. And I'm not discounting those reasons in any way, but there are also let's just be honest, some really bad reasons, too. Really wrong-headed reasons. And I bring this up, this point up, because it seems that it's it's always been a temptation for Christians to prioritize other things over regular worship. It's always been the case. This is not new. This isn't a modern problem. The writer of Hebrews addresses this issue in Hebrews chapter ten, um, where he has to say directly to the Christians there: Don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. This is first-century church, right? First-century Christians. These are the people that, that Christians often idolize and say, oh, they didn't have any problems. I want to go back to the first century church. No, you don't. First century church was a mess, right? And here we get a glimpse of that. There are people who are neglecting meeting together, as is apparently not so uncommon. And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't neglect it. Some Christians just don't understand the importance of gathering regularly with other Christians. They don't understand the manifold threats to their souls that are posed when they don't prioritize those gatherings like they should. Like some of us are, are just addicted to ease and things that come easy. It's not easy to get yourself up on Sunday morning. It's not easy to get kids ready not easy to then come and serve other people. Are you kidding me? Do you know those people? It's not easy to risk relational conflicts. It's not easy to be in the nursery. It's not easy to teach kids. It's not easy to help clean up. It's not easy to reach out to people. We don't do this because this is easy. I was listening uh, last week to Alistair Begg. You know who Alistair Begg is? Pastor in the Cleveland area from Scotland. He's got a, such a good accent. Um, he was doing a Q and A with a bunch of pastors, and um, one of the one of the questions was asked about how he prepares for his sermons, and um, he gave this long, winding, sort of you know like roaming answer about all the things he does to get ready to preach, and then he started talking about on Sunday mornings he gets in his car and on the way to church he turns on worship music so that he can get his heart ready and he admitted that there's a lot of times on his way to church when he's just his heart's not right and he's gotta he's gotta tune in he's gotta you know calibrate and all that and he stopped at the end of that answer it took like 10 minutes to get here but at the end of the end of the answer he stopped and said sometimes i think that god has made me a pastor so i will go to church and i was like i've thought that too I've thought that too. I don't know what I'd do if I wasn't forced to be up here every Sunday, so to speak. I don't know what I'd do. I might find out this summer what I'd do. But I don't know what I'd do. So I get it. It's not easy to be here. It takes work to be here. Um, but I'm telling you in love that if optional activities and optional commitments are consistently leading you away from corporate worship with your church family, which God directly commands and commends to us, it will directly affect your spiritual health. It will. The first step is just to get here, if you can. It's very hard to worship wholeheartedly with the church if you're always opting voluntarily not to be there. So show up. That's first. Second, come to corporate worship with a prayerful heart. Come to corporate worship with a prayerful heart. What I mean by that is be praying as you come that God will be glorified and will bless us as we worship him. There's a thing that James says in James chapter four and verse two, um, where he says you, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. And I can't help but wonder if this could be a... Could it be a primary reason that we often are able to walk away from our Lord's Day gatherings unmoved and, and noticeably unchanged and unaffected, and maybe even more bitter or sour towards being with God's people than when we came? I can't help but wonder if sometimes the problem is that we simply haven't gone to the Lord and asked for, to, for Him to make this a blessing to us and for us. Come prayerful. Come prayerful. If we want to see God glorified in our church, we want to see souls blessed as a result of our gatherings. We want to see sinners saved in our midst. We need to be asking for these things in prayer. That's second. Third, I want to encourage us all to energetically engage in corporate singing. Energetically engage in corporate singing. Sing loud and sing from the heart. Um, repeatedly in the Psalms, God's people are called to sing unto the Lord, right? This is the command. Again and again, sing unto the Lord. To, to set the truths that God has revealed about himself and even to, to put the desires of our hearts to some sort of melody as an act of worship unto God. Um, I'll just read you a small sampling here. Consider these psalms, what they tell us about the importance of singing to the Lord. Psalm 30 and verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 47 and verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. You can't get more emphatic than that. Psalm 92 verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to His name. Or Psalm 96 verses 1 and 2, oh sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, and you're, you know, and so we hear that and a lot of us are like, you know, but I don't sing. I don't sing. You should. You should. doesn't matter what it sounds like. It matters that you do it. Why? Because singing songs of praise and thanks and even lament, sadness, sorrow, mourning, Unto the Lord is an opportunity. Here's what, what I think is the real value of singing. It's an opportunity for God's people to force, force the truth that God has revealed about himself out our mouths. Get it out our mouths. And get it out of our mouths so that our hearts might submit to those truths humbly and sincerely. We've been given words and truths to sing to God, not because singing just makes us feel better or singing, you know, makes us happy. Sometimes it does. But also because it, singing is a way to convince your heart that these things are true, that God is who he's revealed himself to be, that this is the truth. Um, so singing loud and from the heart is an important way, I think, to make the most of corporate worship. It's not for no reason that the Lord has given, the, the, that he gave Israel, and that, that now we get to use a whole book of songs, 150 of them, that he has given to his people to offer back to him. God has given us the words. We just got to get them out of our mouths so that our hearts might believe them. Number four, I want to encourage you to listen attentively to God's word as it's taught and preached. Listen attentively to God's word as it's taught and preached. You know, listening to God's word read, listening to it preached is an act of worship as well. Listening to God's word is just as much an opportunity for worship as the three or four songs that lead up to it. And uh, this is a simple point, but I think it's important. Nonetheless, a Christian can't expect to be greatly edified by the ministry of the Word on a Sunday morning or any other time, for that matter, if he's not actively engaging with the Word while it's being proclaimed. So if you desire to be blessed under biblical preaching and teaching, don't check out. Don't check out when the Word is being preached and taught to you. Work hard to pay attention have your Bible open. Slap yourself in the face if it helps you stay awake. Whatever. Take notes if that helps you retain and respond to what you hear. Don't take notes if it doesn't help. Prayerfully consider how to apply what you're hearing. Give thanks to the God who is speaking through his word. Give thanks to him for the privilege of hearing his word as you're hearing it proclaimed. Engage actively uh, in, in uh, worship as you hear the word preached and taught. Number five, I think this is, I want to encourage you to look out for people to serve and encourage. It's another way you can make the most out of these gatherings. Look out for people to serve and encourage. Um, that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us to do in Hebrews 10 when he says to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. We have just talked about that. But, here's the contrast, encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that's the day of Christ's return drawing near. So don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another. The idea is you can't encourage people that you're not around, right? But he's also saying one of the main purposes of our coming together is, is also to encourage one another, to, to encourage one another to worship the Lord, encourage one another to press on in the faith, encourage one another to keep walking to the day of christ 's return, so look up, lift up your eyes when you 're here you know, look around to others, seek out people to encourage, seek out people to bless, seek out people to serve, so that they might benefit from worship as well. Number seven, worship the Lord throughout the rest of the week, worship the Lord throughout the rest of the week. Um, those who have no vital relationship with Christ, no worshipful relationship with Christ, are not likely, just, you know, heads up, not likely to find an hour and a half of gathering together with his people to be of any particular value. Without question, a God centered gospel, saturated gathering of Christians can do a great deal to fuel the flames of your love and my love for Christ and lead us all into fellowship with Him throughout the rest of the week. Though that's true, it's also true that neglect of personal fellowship with Christ during the week can numb the heart to the blessing of corporate worship. So worshiping the Lord during the week prepares us to do it together on the first day of the next week. Number eight, or seven, whatever this is, you, you know, I don't. Number seven, I think, remind yourself as you come to corporate worship that this is a blood-bought privilege. Remind yourself as you come to corporate worship that this is a blood-bought privilege, and we'll end with this. What benefits might flow to us through our times of corporate worship if when we walk through the doors of the church or on our way to worship or in the car or whatever we spent a few moments reminding ourselves of how unworthy we are to come to God on our own and gave thanks to God for his wonderful grace in Christ that has brought us near. That God would invite us, a remarkably fallen people, to worship him and receive the encouragement of his word is a miracle of grace. Let's remember that always and let's remind ourselves of that at least every Sunday morning. Worship is not only our duty because of who God is and what Christ has done for us, it is a privilege and a blessing that has been paid for in Christ's blood. So then by all means, let's make the most of it, both now, both this summer and forevermore. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the way that it points us and, and leads us along a path prioritizing the most important things for us. Thank you for the invitation to worship you. Thank you that we've gotten to do that again this morning. Thank you that we get to do that Every day in Christ and because of him, thank you that you invite us as a church to come back together every single week to start our week off bowing before your throne, giving you the, the due response of fallen, sinful, redeemed creatures as we are. Thank you for Christ whose blood covers our sins and allows us to come near to you and be received and be welcomed. Thank you for your grace in inviting us to come to Christ again and again and again and for the grace that you give us through those encounters. Lord, teach us to be more sincere worshipers, teach us to worship you, worship Christ in spirit and in truth. Teach us to give you what you deserve so that we also might gain the blessing of being your people and being your worshiping people. So Lord, change us in these ways, conform us to Christ, conform us to the standards of your word in this area. And do it for your glory that we might honor you in all that we do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.